Hey, uh, this morning we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going to give you just a little bit of a review from what we've talked about over the last, well, really just last week. I'm going to give you a little review. Um, and then we're going to pause and, uh, and look into the, uh, the passage for, for this week. We're going to do, do that in a little bit different way. But first, let's get a review. So what, uh, what book are we in? Let's start there. We're in Second Chronicles. Good, good, good. Okay, what king are we studying? Hezekiah, who was the king of what? Judah. Good. All right. Y'all are on it this morning. I'm telling you, because some mornings, I, right? Some mornings it's like, right? <laughs> and and like only my front row people are saying something. Y'all all said something this morning. Hezekiah. That's what I'm talking about. All right. So Hezekiah, king of Judah. We're studying him because I uh, feel like that in Hezekiah we see a picture of what what God is calling uh, you, this generation to uh, to be, to value the presence of God, to restore worship. He's going to, uh, in, in just a moment, we're going to read in the 30th chapter uh, where he restores the Passover, really important, um, and, and valuing the Passover and what it is, what it means to the children of Israel, what it means to us uh, as well. Uh, but, but we feel like God has given us a picture uh, of, of what it looks like to reshape culture and who he's called you to be uh, as the people of God. So we've talked about how he consecrated the priests and the Levites, how he cleansed the temple, how it took, you know, how long did it take? Ooh, this is a good one. Do you remember? 16 days, right? It took 16 days of work. He cleansed the temple. Last week we read that after it was cleansed that he slept in and about lunchtime got up and started off again, right? No, it says that he rose what? Early, he rose early after the temple was cleansed, and he uh, he began this incredible scene uh, of of sacrifice. And there were two types of sacrifices. Anybody know what two types of sacrifices took place? Golly, y'all are so making me so proud. Sin and burnt offering. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if I should keep testing it or not. If I, I should just be happy with what you've answered. But you want me to keep testing? Okay. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that was very decisive. Okay, I won't. So there's sin and burnt offering. And the burnt offering uh, is, is an act of worship. And we've compared that to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul tells us to what? Present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our act of worship, right? And we talked about how sacrifice and worship uh, go to go together. And so we studied both the burnt and the sin offering. And now we have finished... Chapter 29, and everybody said, Amen. Chapter 29 is in the books. The end of chapter 29 uh, was so good, it said in verse 36, And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people, for the thing came about suddenly. Yeah, and that is what gives my heart such excitement for what God is doing uh, in our day. Because I think if you, if you look at the day-to-day if you look at the way that, uh, if, if you just were to turn on the news, look at culture, you could, you could easily get discouraged. Uh, but the, the thing that is so encouraging to me is that revival does not come on our watch. Revival doesn't come by our clock. It doesn't come because we plan it out and say, okay, we're going to have this event and this event and this event, and then revival's going to come. Revival comes because God brings it, period. 
And what their job was to do was to position themselves. They weren't, he wasn't trying to create, in a sense, revival. He was, he was trying to be obedient to who God had called them to be. And so in his obedience, it required uh, submission. In his obedience, it required repentance. In his obedience, it required sacrifice. And in light of those things, what was the, what was the result? The result was the beginnings of revival. The result was that a whole nation began to turn to the Lord. Not because they set their clock by it, but because God did it. Because his people were being obedient. And that's encouraging to me. Uh, because I, I'm telling you, we, we, I think we have a little bit of a pessimistic problem in the church today. We are very loud complainers. We get worried really easy. We complain quite a bit. And, uh, and I just, that's not in God's heart. And this thing came about suddenly. And, and who are we to get our heads down when we serve the living God who can turn things around in a moment? Uh, our job is to, uh, is to submit to him. Our job is to be obedient. Our job is to be who he's called us to be, to worship him and to trust his provision and his plan, not to get all downtrodden and Eeyore, right? I talked about that 24-7. That's kind of become a thing now, the Eeyore thing. So anyway, I like Eeyore, actually. <laughs> all right, Second Chronicles chapter 30. Not knocking Eeyore, all right? Everybody loves Eeyore. Here we go. Second Chronicles chapter 30. Here's what we're going to do. This is what's going to be a little bit different. I, I, I just, I continue to get convicted about the, the, uh, the disconnect that I think can happen. Um, when somebody's up here with a microphone, I, I watched it through fall retreat. Um, it just from it was a great perspective for me just to, to not have any responsibility at all. It was a little bit weird. I was just there. So if you thought I was kind of looking weird, looking out of place, it's because I, I felt that way too. I was just, I, Gary just kept telling me, no, you're just supposed to be here. Just, and I'm going, oh, what do I do? I need to do something. What do I need to do? No, just be here. So it was kind of, I was kind of freaking out, but I got a, a really good opportunity to just watch. And I think we get just so, I mean, look, if you went to fall retreat, um, this is the third message you've heard in, in just a few days. And how in the routine do we get of just there's a guy with a mic and he's going to tell us things that Jesus likes for us to do and then we go to the next one. And in like 30 minutes, whenever I hush, you're going to have like a 20-minute break or not even that, depending on when I hush. And, uh, and, and then you're going to go in and we're going to do it again. Does it, right? Do you ever just get in a routine of that? And, and it just, you start to disconnect a little bit, right? You stop kind of processing what God is saying, and you're just kind of going through the motions. And I just kind of continue to go, okay, God, how do we break that? How do we, how do we get out of that? And it may be just laying the microphone down sometimes, but um, what I felt like this morning God was asking us to do, so it's a little bit different. I want you to get in groups. I don't care how big they are. I don't care how small they are. You're going to get in groups, and you're going to read our, our text for this morning. Um, we're going to be in chapter 30. Uh, we're going to go from verse 1 to 13, and here's, here's your instructions, okay? And I, seriously, if you're in a group of 2 or a group of 10, I don't care. I don't care. So uh, we're going to read from uh, chapter 30, verse 1 through 13. Somebody in your group, read it out loud, okay? And then I want, I want you to spend, I'm not going to uh, tell you how many people have to pray. I just want you to pray into that text. I want you to ask, here's a couple of things. God, will you speak to us from your word? Will you teach us from what we've just read? Will you teach us? And God may highlight some things that you, you already see there. We may, I may go over them, I may not. But, but God, would you teach us from your word? Ask for the people in your group. Uh, God, would we be listeners to your Holy Spirit? Because the only way we're going to learn anything this morning, the only way we're going to grow this morning is if we encounter God. And he's given us that opportunity by the person of the Holy Spirit who's in us, who will lead us into all what? 
whoops, come on, truth, right? It's all right. If you get one question wrong out of like 15 this morning, that's okay. But Holy Spirit's kind of one of those big ones, so don't miss that one again, all right? God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you need to, you need to nail those, okay? All right. The Holy Spirit leads us into all truth, right? And so if we're going to do anything that's better than just listening to somebody talk, we need the Holy Spirit, don't we? Right? We have to have the Holy Spirit. So what I want you to do is just read the text out loud together. Um, pray that God would open your ears. Pray for your group um, that God, by the Holy Spirit, would speak truth to us. Um, I'm going to interrupt you. If you're done, great. If not, great. I'll interrupt you. I'm going to pray for all of us, and then we'll, and then we'll, uh, we'll go through this a little bit. But, but we, we, not me, uh, we need to come to this text together. We need to come and submit to the Holy Spirit together. We need to do it. And, uh, and so that's what I'm hoping we can accomplish this morning a little bit is us coming together around a text. So cool? All right, you guys go ahead. Well, God, we just ask that you would, uh, that you would by your Spirit, lead us this morning. That, uh, that we would hear you, that we would encounter you in the word this morning, God, that you would uh, bring us closer and nearer to you, but also, God, that you would bring us closer and nearer to one another, uh, that as a group uh, we would go deeper, uh, God, in you and, and with one another. Um, God, I pray that this would be a, a, a moment where we, together, uh, not a division of platform and audience, but we together as your people would humble ourselves before you and hear your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you guys take a minute and kind of get back into your spots and let's go over what you've just prayed through. Second Chronicles chapter 30, verse 1 through 13. So now you've already read it, so we can just jump right in. This is an invitation this passage is a passage of invitation. Uh, we will read uh, in, in next week uh, about what happened in response to the invitation, about the, the result of the invitation, but this is about an invitation. And so we're going to break down these, these 13 verses and see, uh, see what happened. Now remember, I, I know that uh, it can be easy to lose sight of it because this is a long uh, series so far, uh, but... We're looking at really specifically at who Hezekiah was uh, at his heart and, uh, and what his priorities were. How did he go, th- go about things? So I want to kind of keep that in mind uh, as we continue on. Um, so it, it, here's what it says. It says in verse 1 that Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah. He wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. For the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep the Passover in the second month, for they could not keep it at the time because the priests had not consecrated themselves in sufficient number, nor had the people assembled in Jerusalem. And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So they decreed to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that the people should come and keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not kept it as often as prescribed. All right, that's the first five verses. What is the uh, what is the uh, the day that he is attempting to reinstitute? The what? The Passover, right? 
he wants to reinstitute the feast of the Passover. Now we're going to talk about what what the Passover is a little bit uh, here, a little this week and and more next week. Uh, but the, the the important thing here is that we understand that he is reinstituting a uh, a feast that who set aside? Who is it that created the Passover? God did. God said that they're good. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, will be, you'll be right 90% of the time here. All right? God instituted the Passover uh, as a way for the people of Israel to come together around one specific event. What was that event? It was the removal of the children of Israel from where? Egypt, right? And it's called Passover because the, the blood of the lamb covered the doorpost and the angel of death passed over those houses who had, the, uh, had sacrificed the lamb, this picture of the blood of Christ and what he would do. The angel of death passed over. This is when Pharaoh relented and said, fine, you can go. Pat's covering this uh, in, in our next, uh, next hour. He's going through the, the exodus from Egypt. But uh, this is that moment where Pharaoh relinquishes and God says, you are to remember this day. You're to observe it and God gives a specific time and God gives a specific day when the children of Israel are to remember this day of the Passover. The Passover meal is where we get communion from. Uh, it is what Jesus was celebrating with his disciples uh, is, is Passover and it's where communion actually comes out of. Uh, so, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that probably next week. But the point is that he's reinstituting Passover, this central event in the history of the children of Israel. And who does he give the invitation to? Everyone. It's really important to see that because he's the king of what? Judah. But where does Hezekiah's invitation go to? It goes to all of Israel and all of Judah. He doesn't leave any stone uncovered. He invites everyone. So what does this tell us about Hezekiah? Because remember, what is the state of the northern kingdom of Israel? Yeah, it's a mess. It's being taken over. over this. The scholars believe that this is right in the middle towards the tail end of who conquering Israel. Assyria, good. Man. Y'all are so on fire this morning. Assyria has been conquering Israel, yet he still, and there's been division between Judah and Israel all the way back to the days of Solomon, yet he still creates this invitation. Because why? Because Hezekiah did not see God's kingdom as a divided kingdom. Hezekiah saw the original heart of God, which is that all tribes, all 12 tribes of Israel would be united and together under the headship of God. That was the intent. That was the way that they came out of the Exodus. That's what God established in the wilderness. That's what God established as he brought them into the promised land, that they would be one people, one nation set aside for the glory of God. This is what Hezekiah knew, and he didn't waver for a minute. He didn't look to the uh, capture of the Assyrians, uh, sorry, the capture of Israel by the Assyrians and go, well, I guess they can't participate. And so I'll only send the invitation to Judah. Here's the deal. Here's what just so stirred in my heart as I read this. When he sent to all Israel and Judah, that if, if we are going to be who God has called us to be in this hour, we cannot see God's church as a divided church. That what God wants to do, the salvation that God wants to bring, let me just tell you, I know this may shock some of you, but God doesn't just want to bring hope and healing and restoration to Baptists. Some of you will recover from that in a few days. 
God doesn't want to just bring hope and healing and restoration to the Church of Christ or to the Methodists or the whoever. God wants to bring hope and healing and restoration to all who would bow to Him. To all who would come under the name of Jesus Christ, God wants to do a massive and profound work. And Hezekiah did not see the kingdom as divided. He saw it, listen, listen, he saw it as God saw it. One people. We must also see the church as God sees it. Not as divided pockets of people, but as one church, one body, global unified. I'm astounded at how many stories I hear. I heard one last night talking to some of these uh, pastors and BSM directors, listening to the unbelievable, uh, unbelievable pettiness at churches. Well, I'll just, it's, it's so ridiculous. I'll, I'll tell you the story. This group of churches has done, uh, and, 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 well, I'll just leave it at that. This group of churches has done an event together for years and years and years. Somebody gets their feelings hurt. These two churches come together and decide that they're going to exclude the guy who, who hurt their feelings. So they don't even give the invitation to come to this event anymore. We're just going to, what is this, middle school? I was like, yeah, it sounds familiar. That's the things I did in elementary school and middle school. He hurt my feelings. I'm not inviting him to my birthday party. Right? This is grown men. This is grown people that are supposed to be pastors and ministers in churches. And I just want to tell you, look, this division is killing us. But I believe God has called your generation to be a generation that doesn't see division. But that sees unity under the banner of of Christ Jesus. That's what Hezekiah saw, and so he sent the invitation to all. Look, anyone who wants to come. Now, here's the deal. What did he send the invitation for? He sent it for Passover. So he didn't say, anyone who wants to come any way you want to come, doing whatever you want. He didn't say that. And this is where I feel like your generation gets, pu- gets pushed a little bit. You want unity. You don't want division. But you get pushed by your culture to say, okay, fine, then that means we can't draw any lines. You feel me? That in the name of unity, you can come however you want, saying whatever you want, proclaiming you whatever you want. We're turning no one away because we don't want the brokenness that disunity brings. Let me tell you, that's from a good heart, but God draws lines. You can stand on the lines that God draws. And God doesn't ever draw lines out of anger. God doesn't draw lines out of, out of uh, bitterness. God draws lines out of, listen, his goodness. It is a good thing for a parent to draw lines. Amen? God drew a line. God said, you will observe Passover. You will, for your goodness, observe Passover because it is good for you and for generations to come to remember the work that I did for the children of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. It is important that you remember and here's how you observe Passover. We already know that God drew lines because we've studied what, what he did uh, in the rebuilding of the temple, right? We already know that God said that this is the way that you're going to do it because I'm holy and I'm not going to become less holy so you can hang out with me. I'm going to bring you into what I am. 
God draws lines out of his goodness. This broad invitation for unity was with the lines of come and celebrate Passover. Not come however you want. It was come and be who God has called us to be. That's important for you to remember because there are going to be some that are going to hear this invitation and they're going to mock it. There are going to be some that are going to hear this invitation and they're going to reject it. It doesn't change the importance of the invitation to be what God has asked uh, for us to do. True unity comes in submission to the Lord. All other forms of unity are fake. (laughs) You can all wear the same t-shirt. That doesn't mean you're unified. That just means you're dressed the same. The only possibility, listen to me, the only possibility for human beings to be actually unified, right? Think about it. Think about what the, the, the definition of unity is. And Jesus prayed for it in John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. So what is the only way for human beings who are different emotionally, who are different mentally? I mean, we think different. We have different personalities. There is no way that there's unity in this room. No way that in a human way that there's any unity in this room. I don't care how much you think you're similar to the person next to you. The only possibility for human beings to be unified is in submission to a God that never changes. You with me? That's it. Because how often do we change? Some of y'all are just thinking about how many times you changed clothes this morning. Well, it's going to be 80 later, but it's 40 right now. The Texas contradiction, right? Right? Y'all are feeling it. I'm stuck in short sleeves till my house is finished because I don't have any other clothes. So I'm just hoping the weather holds out. (laughs) That's good, right? Come on. (laughs) But listen, the only way for human beings to be unified is to submit to God. And so his invitation is for unity because his invitation is to come and be who God has called us to be. Let's celebrate the Passover together. Let's be who God has called us to be. Passover is God's great work of redemption. What does it tell us? What does it tell us as a huge unifying point for the body of Christ? What is Passover a picture of? We just said it. Come on, it's one of the three answers. Jesus, very good. <laughs> We're losing steam here, right? Passover is this picture of the, of the salvific, I'm not going to try to say salvific. Uh, the saving work of Jesus. Y'all say it. Laugh at me. Whatever, show off. <laughs> uh, okay, so it's this picture. It's this picture of the work of Jesus, what, on the cross, of his blood that brought redemption and freedom. They were in slavery. We were in slavery to sin and death, and they were set free by the blood of the Lamb. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? This is the story of salvation. And this is the central gathering point for the people of God. They're going to gather around the narrative of the salvation that God has brought. And I want to tell you, that's why I said that, that we need a generation that doesn't see, uh, that, that, that rejects disunity and brings unity under this work of the cross. That sees unity to, get, to gather ourselves and submit ourselves under the banner of the cross. This is the central point. For us as believers, this is, the, this is the place, the cross, the blood of Jesus is the place that we all have in common because it has set each one of us free. 
Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. It is this central act of Christ that has brought us all into relationship with the Father, and in through that central act, we are all sons and daughters. And this is the thing that Hezekiah is gathering the people around, and it is the thing The worship of Jesus, the recognition of Jesus as Messiah, the Savior, this is the thing that will bring unity in our day. And it's what Hezekiah was gathering his people around. Now, there's something interesting about this. It's for a reason. Did you notice that uh, that they wrote down the timing of this Passover event? When did it take? When when were they going to celebrate? In the second month. Now, anybody read about Passover in its original intent? Do you know what month it was supposed to take place in? <laughs> good guess, good, good. Well, no, I'm sorry, not guess, you were so confident. First, the first month. Except, except, and there's this kind of this strange, uh, strange uh, passage in the law that says, except for in a matter of uncleanness, where cleansing is required, then Passover could be celebrated. It's kind of this anomaly for, the, for a, the purpose of uncleanness. But then Passover could be celebrated, guess what? In the what? Second month. And what do we then again learn about Hezekiah? He wants to do this absolutely the way that God said to do it. And so that's why it says, uh, and, and you see here it says uh, in verse 2, for the king and his princes and all the assembly in Jerusalem had taken counsel to keep Passover in the second month. They couldn't keep it at the time, the first month, because the priests had not consecrated themselves. We just read that, right? They had to go through that whole work. It took 16 days. They'd missed the Passover, and the people were not in Jerusalem. It was another thing that God had commanded, that all would come to the central place and celebrate Passover. And it says in verse 4, And the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. They didn't just kick it around and go, well, you know what? What's a weekend that you're off and I'm off and that sounds good, right? They sought the scriptures because Hezekiah, again, we see it again and again and again and again. Hezekiah's heart was to do this exactly the way that God had commanded. He was a man that was obedient to God. And so they saw, okay, what do we do? We've missed it, but it's for the matter of uncleanness. So what do we do? It's right to celebrate it. It's in our heart in obedience to God to celebrate the Passover. And so they come up with this plan that they're going to celebrate it in the second month according to the scriptures. It's not random. I love that that's in there. So they send the invitation out. Now here we go. This gets a little interesting. Verse 6. So couriers uh, went throughout all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and his princes, as the king had commanded, saying, O people of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the, hands, uh, from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, Uh, to the Lord God of their fathers, so that he made them a desolation as you see. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. That's quite an invitation, isn't it? Now I want you to put your hands... uh, (laughs) This is going to be a rough morning. Sorry guys, I can't put words together. Um, put yourselves in the places of the remnant. So the remnant 
that they're talking about here would have been the people of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, who have been at this point overrun by the Assyrians. Now, scholars believe that either this, this message would have been received in pockets of Israel where, where Assyria hadn't just totally wiped everything out, or, and it's probably a mixture of both, or it's in places where people have escaped. There's pockets of people that have escaped, and they call them the remnant, like those, those who have been able to avoid this, uh, this, this overrunning uh, by the Assyrians. And this is where this invitation goes. Uh, and, and so the invitation, though, is really sweet, isn't it? Isn't it such a kind and sweet invitation? Don't be stiff-necked. <laughs> Come to my party, right? What if that's the way you sent out birthday invitations? <laughs> You stiff-necked fool, you missed it last year. Come, right? This comes with the authority of a prophetic voice, doesn't it? Doesn't this sound like something one of the prophets would say? Don't miss this opportunity to repent. This comes with the the thundering voice of the word of God. And he says that, that you should not be like your fathers. Come and be who God has called us to be. Now, if you're receiving this as a remnant, right, in the midst of all this desolation, you're hearing this word, this invitation, and you're looking around you, and you've probably got relatives that have been hauled off into captivity. You may or may not have a home. You're in total desolation, which is the consequence of a nation that has turned its back on the Lord for years and years and years and years. And you're sitting in the midst of that, and then you get this invitation from the king of Judah that says, come and repent. Come and join with us and celebrate the Passover. This is an incredible opportunity for there to be unity amongst those who have not been taken into captivity and those who are in Judah who are just now starting to return to the Lord. Because it's not like Judah's a bunch of saints, right? They've been following Ahaz. They've rejected this as long as the kings have. It's two broken peoples receiving an invitation to come together around the work of Passover, right? So, this is the invitation Now notice there's no negotiation here, right? Typically when you call somebody stiff-necked, you lose your negotiation power. There's been many a time I've been negotiating for a car and wanting to call the person stiff-necked. You guys are not, I mean, I'm telling jokes and what's, I mean, what are we doing? (laughs) Nobody else? Okay, forget it. Okay, we'll just be serious. So, just kidding. (laughs) There's no negotiation here. Now I want you to I want you to notice this because this is where I feel like we can connect with this. God draws you know God draws lines, and it's okay for us to draw lines too. Hezekiah doesn't say come and hang out with us whatever way that you want. He says specifically you have to come, but if you're going to come, you have to repent. If you're going to come, you cannot come the way that your fathers and your brothers came. You have to come in submission to the Lord and celebrate the Passover. God does not negotiate. His grace is free and available to who? Everyone. Everyone. But he will not negotiate the way in which that grace is received. 
God is not in the business of negotiating with you. God is in the business of welcoming you into who He is. That is God's heart. But in order to do it, God has established a way in which we can become sons and daughters, in which we can live in the presence of God, in which the presence of God can live in you. And that way is by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And He has not made another way. But it's free and available to all. It's free and available to all, but God is not going to negotiate. We have to come and submit. There's no other way to follow Jesus. How much negotiating did Jesus do with the men that he called to follow him? Think about those stories. How much negotiation was there? What about the guy that said, let me go and bury my father first? What did he say? Let the dead bury their dead. You follow me. What about the rich young ruler? Go and sell everything you own and follow me. He left what? Sad. And the text doesn't tell us. And Jesus went running after him and saying, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Please follow me. You don't have to sell everything. You can come whatever way you want. There's no negotiation. It's free. The way has been paid, but it requires your life. It requires repentance. It requires humility. It's available to all, but it's the way that God has set it up, and he does not compromise. All right, here we go. Y'all got that point? You're like, I read the passage. I prayed through it this morning. I got it. So he says in verse 9, If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is what? gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. What is this setting them up against? What are they going to have to defeat in their heart if they are going to receive blessing from God? Starts with a P, ends with ride. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's blessing for you. God will not turn his face away from you. God is faithful. There's blessing and it's not just for you. It's for generations. This is the way that God has set it up. That if you come, God will bless generations of those who what? Submit themselves to him. But if there's anything in you that says, nope, I can do this. You will not come. If there's anything in you that says, no, that I am able to rescue myself out of this, or I'm upset with God, or I'm, I'm not coming. If there's any hesitation in you, if it's not 100% full submission, then you will not come. It's not a matter of will God have you or not. God will have them in a moment. God will not turn his face from his people, but he asks for them to do one thing. Submit. Do not be like your brothers. Do not be like your fathers. Submit. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. What does that mean? What's that called? The fancy church word for if you will return to him is what? It starts with an R. 
repentance. If you will stop in the way that you're going and return to Him, He will not withhold from you all that is yours. He will not withhold, sorry, all that is His. He will not withhold from you all that is in His goodness. He will bless you. Imagine the thought of that. That God will bless you, even though this has been your story of rebellion, if you'll just turn. There's a passage in the Psalms that tells us that if we turn to God, that he will meet us in our turning. It's kind of how the Hebrew plays out. Meaning that there are moments in our life where we feel like there's distance from God. That the space, is, if God is the table and, I am, and I'm me, that there's distance between me and God. And God's invitation is to return. And the scripture tells us that as we turn, God is present. That it's not a turning and working our way back to him. God will not turn his face. He is graceful and merciful. And in our turning, it's like this simultaneous event. In our turning, you, you will experience the nearness of God. Amen? This is the invitation. But it takes submission. It takes the rejection of pride. All right. Let's, uh, let's move quickly here to the last couple verses. Verse 10. So the couriers went from city to city. Uh, through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun. But what happened? But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, I love the however. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, of Zebulun, humbled themselves. There it is. Humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Let's go through this quickly. What did they do in response to this message? That message cut to the heart of what they were in, the rebellion that they had been in. That message required them to accuse generations of walking away from the Lord. For them to humble themselves would have been to say that for generations we have been walking the wrong way. It was repentance for them. It was repentance for their fathers. It was, it was lots and lots of repentance necessary in order to go to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover. And as a result of them being asked to do a hard thing, what did they do? They mocked them to scorn. This is a devastating reality of what happens many, 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 many times. What does what 1 Corinthians chapter, 22, uh, chapter 1 tell us about the foolish things that God uses? What does he use them to do? To confound what? Okay, just go there. You guys don't know what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 22. You're like, I know, I know. I said chapter 22, chapter 1. I hope you guys will forgive me for all my bumbling today. Chapter 1. <laughs> Listen to verse 22. For the Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A what? Stumbling block to Jews. And what? Yeah, a stumbling block and foolishness and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul would also tell us that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Have you ever been in a bad spot in your life and someone offers you help and that voice in your flesh says, No, I'll do it myself. Dudes. Right? Our, I've told you this before, but our flesh has one aim. Our flesh's aim is self-preservation. If you absent Christ, the thing you're going to do is you're going to take care of you. You're going to do everything you can do to take care of you, and you're going to muster up every amount of effort you need in order to take care of you. It is a, it is a thing that is only possible by faith to say that I need help, isn't it? The cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. This invitation to come and to celebrate the Passover is absolute foolishness. Even in their rubble, even in the place that they were, totally desolate, in captivity, the invitation comes and what do they do? They mock it out of pride. Because the way of the cross is in repentance. The way of the cross is in suffering and in submission. The way of the cross is everything except for pride. And this invitation required that they lay their pride down, that they confess that they were wrong, that they repent and walk in a new direction. And the message was received with scorn. And the scripture tells us that we will preach the gospel And in receipt that many times what we will get is this very scorn, is this very mocking. The foolishness of this message to the world is immense. You want me to what? You want me to admit that even on my best day, the only thing that I can produce is sin? Because we're not negotiating with the world. We're not saying that there's a level of morality that you can achieve that will get you to God. The message that we bring, the gospel message and its audacity is to say that there is nothing good in you. That you are God's enemy through and through and on your best day you are scum of the earth. Isn't that a pretty message? (laughs) But this is the message of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that there is one who has come and paid for that scum. There is one who has come to forgive you of that sin, but it requires you confessing and admitting that that is in you. And many will receive that message with scorn. Here's the danger. The temptation for us is that when that scorn comes, we want to say what? Well, maybe there's another way. Maybe you can come to Jesus maybe a different way. Maybe your morality is good enough. And what do we begin to do in order to get him in the door? We begin to water down the message of the gospel. You guys have probably all heard it before. There was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer that kind of coined this phrase, cheap grace. It's it's not real grace, but it's grace that you get to receive that costs you nothing. The gospel never said that this will cost you nothing. It said everything was paid for you, but it will cost you everything. You with me? Some received it with mock and scorn, but the hope is that what? Some, what did they say they did? They humbled themselves. They humbled themselves and they came. 
we will receive in our preaching of the gospel, we will receive both. In verse 12, it says that unity was given. It says the hand of God was on, uh, the hand of God was also on Judah to give them what? One heart. To do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Unity was given by God in light of obedience. Again, please hear this. Unity is not something that we manufacture. We can't say, man, we should really be unified in this room and then do it. You with me? It is something that is given by God. And the way that we participate in that unity is in our submission to him. It's the only possibility for human beings to be unified is in submission to God. And then God in turn gives that unity. You see it there in verse 12. God gave them one heart to do uh, what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. They were given unity in light of their submission, but that unity was given by God. I'm going to read uh, Acts 2, and I want to see if this sounds familiar to what we just read about unity. And we're going to close here. Yeah, we are. All right. Acts 2. Listen to verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Unity does not come through human effort. Human Unity comes as we submit ourselves to the Lord he in turn, by his spirit, unifies his people. And it's a miracle. Unity among the, amongst the human race is a miracle. Because it is not possible absent God. People ought to walk into this room and they ought to see the miraculous just by us being in the room. Because there ought to be unity in here. Why? Because we're submitted to God and God has in turn given us unity in our submission. That's why he said, love one another. By this, they'll know that you're my disciples if you love one another, because that's not normal, right? God, would you give us this unity? Would you show us our pride that we might submit to you? And God, in a day in our nation where there is anything but unity, On all levels, God, would you bring the supernatural unity into your church? Would you, by your power and by your spirit, give us a unity that preaches of the love of God? God, we ask for what you did in Hezekiah's day. We ask for you to do it in ours. God, bring this unity. Bring us to submission. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we'll see you guys next week. You're dismissed, not released.